Well, I am Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you. So let's turn our attention to that Word this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're beginning a short sermon series that will uh, lead up to and include Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. It's called The Road to Easter because the messages are all framed around different roads that Jesus took en route to Calvary. And then, of course, on uh, Easter Sunday, a road that he took after his resurrection. And the first road that we'll be looking at is the road into Jerusalem during this uh, episode that's known as the Triumphal Entry. So read along with me, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, going through verse 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen and amen. Well, the answer is that he wanted to fulfill his mission. Jesus had a purpose in life, and he was going to fulfill that purpose in life, culminating in the cross. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John 10, Jesus said, The thief only comes to steal, to steal. My East Texas accent, I, I rhyme steal and kill, but those words shouldn't rhyme. To steal to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Mark 10 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the, the entire arc of his life was leading up toward this painful end, and he was determined to go through with it. His mission required his death, his blood sacrifice to atone for sin. And so because he was steadfast in that mission of redemption, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He was resolute in his purpose to fulfill his mission because he was resolute to rescue the lost because he loves us. Hebrews 12.2 says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. What joy was set before Jesus? The joy of redeeming a people for himself. The joy of reconciling us to himself by the blood of his cross. The joy of glorifying the Father by demonstrating God's righteousness, God's wisdom, and God's grace. 
And for the joy set before him, not only did he endure the cross, but he went up to Jerusalem with full knowledge that a death sentence awaited him. Praise the Lord Jesus for his steadfastness. Praise him for his faithfulness to his mission. Praise him for his perfect obedience to his father. His courage and his resolve in the face of impending death ultimately brought all of us salvation. If you feel forgotten by the Lord this morning, if you feel unloved by the Lord this morning, take comfort in the fact that his determination to go to Jerusalem was in part to redeem you, to redeem you, to redeem you. Jesus was steadfast in his mission of redemption out of his infinite and glorious love for us. Second thing I want to point out is that Jesus was in control. In the history of the world, there has never been a more innocent victim than Jesus Christ on the cross. But the Gospels make it clear that Jesus was a willing victim, and more than that, he was actually in control of the events that were happening. It was his plan and his timetable that the earthly authorities were following. It wasn't a case of some poor peasant that was being pushed around by the great powers of the world. Instead, it was the case of this poor peasant causing the powers of the world to do his bidding. When the soldiers came to arrest him in Gethsemane, he demonstrated that he was in control by throwing them all to the ground just by saying a few words. In his interactions with the Jewish authorities, with Pilate, with Herod, all of those paint a picture of a man who was completely calm and serene because he was actually the one in charge. He was the one in control of the situation. And in this passage in Luke, as Jesus is about to enter into his final conflict with earthly powers, the Spirit uses the simple act of procuring a donkey to show us that Jesus is in control. Look at verses 29 through 34 again. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now I will say before I go on, that there are students of Scripture, Bible-believing, God-fearing students of Scripture who believe that there was nothing supernatural in this arrangement. They uh, believe that Jesus prearranged with some other followers to go find a donkey for him and prearranged for this key phrase, the Lord has need of it, to be used so that the owners would know that the right people were getting it. So that is possible. But I think it's unlikely for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, it would seem unlikely that the rest of his disciples, his closest disciples, wouldn't have known about this, whereas this seems like it was new information to them. And for another thing, when the uh, disciples came to pick up the donkey, <clears throat> excuse me, when the disciples came to pick up the donkey, the owners seemed a little bit surprised, like, okay, why are you doing this? And if all of this had been arranged, they surely they would have already been expecting that. So I think what's happening is that Jesus is demonstrating his omniscience and omnipotence. He knew that someone who believed in him, some, someone who called him Lord, lived in the village ahead. He knew that that person had a young donkey, which had never been ridden. He knew that they wouldn't object if the colt was taken, if they knew it was being taken for the Lord Jesus. 
Or he, perhaps he moved the hearts of the owners to be convinced by this simple phrase, the Lord has need of it. He knew that the owners of the colt lived at the very edge of the village because he told his disciples, on entering the village, you'll find this colt tied up. I believe Christ is displaying his divine knowledge and his instruction to the disciples to get the animal. And the text says that the disciples found it just as he had told them. There were no surprises and no complications because Jesus was in control. Now think for just a minute if you or I had tried to arrange that. Think of all the things that could have gone wrong. What if the donkey got away? What if it chewed through its rope and ran off? What if someone stole the donkey? What if the disciples went to the wrong house? But because Jesus was completely in control, exercising his power as the sovereign of the universe, everything flowed exactly how he, ended, how he intended it to flow. And by the way, I keep saying donkey, even though I realize that Luke only mentions colt, but the other gospels tell us that this was the colt of a donkey, not a horse. Matthew also points out that what Jesus was doing was a fulfillment of a, of a prophecy Found in Zechariah verse nine, excuse me, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, which says this: Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was prophesying the king who would, <clears throat> excuse me, the king who would come to bring deliverance and peace. Jesus is that king, so therefore he chose to ride a donkey into Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, I recognize that this is what we would call a self-fulfilling prophecy because anybody could rent a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, right? But Jesus had all of those credentials behind him, his miraculous works, his virgin birth, his descent from, the, from uh, King David, and so on. He also chose to ride a donkey that had never been ridden, and I, I think part of the significance of that is it, it speaks of the idea of purity and being set apart, fitting in with him, of course, being perfect, pure, holy, and set apart. Uh, also, in a sense, foreshadowing the fact that when he was buried, he was buried in a tomb that had never been used. And uh, I don't know how many of you ever, have ever tried to ride a beast of burden, a horse or a donkey or a mule, a goat, ox. <laughs> But uh, one thing about them, I'm, I'm thinking of the equine versions, the donkeys and horses. One thing about them, if they haven't been ridden before, they often don't ride easily. Okay, Because even though it looks like they're just made to have people sit upon them, they don't often like people to sit upon them. And so Jesus is, again, demonstrating his control over nature by the fact that this donkey, which had never been ridden, he gets on it and rides it and absolutely no problems. It didn't rear up, it didn't jump, it didn't kick, it didn't bite, just let, it just, just followed his commands. Jesus chose to ride a donkey into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, in essence saying, I am this king that you've been waiting for. Jesus was in complete control of all the details surrounding this situation, and that means also that Jesus is in control today. I think one of the lessons that we can take from this passage is that regardless of the circumstances you're facing right now, you can trust, absolutely trust that Jesus is in control. There are a lot of things in life that we can't be certain about. In fact, there are very few things we can be certain about. But this you can be certain about, and that is that Jesus is in control. If your marriage is disintegrating or your health is shattered, you can rest in your soul knowing that Jesus is in control. You can be certain that he knows every detail of your life and that he is working 
for your good. Be assured that no one, no man, no woman, no angel, no demon can throw God off of his plans or prevent his plans from coming to pass in your life. Amen, and praise God for that. Jesus was steadfast in his mission of redemption. Jesus was in control, and Jesus declared himself king. Jesus had the family credentials, as I mentioned, to be the king of Israel. He was directly descended from King David. His adopted father, Joseph, his legal father, was a direct descendant of King David. His biological mother, Mary, was a direct descendant of King David. But he also proved that he deserved to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God who was to be king forever. He proved it by his miracles. He proved it by his fulfillment of prophecy. And now he was ready to present himself to the people of Israel as their long-awaited king the one for whom they had been longing and waiting for centuries. Jesus could have arranged for a grand ceremony. He could have had pageantry and planned celebrations. He could have sent disciples ahead into Jerusalem to round up everybody that believed in him or even to hire people that didn't to yell his praises and shout his glories. He could have hired musicians to add excitement and really pump up his followers. But, of course, that isn't the way of Jesus. His presentation of himself to the nation, his declaration of his kingship would be humble yet unmistakable. Jesus didn't even tell his disciples that he was declaring himself king by fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. John 12, 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. He was displaying his humility by not trumpeting himself. Look again at verses 35 through 38. And they brought it, the colt, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Now, I mentioned that Jesus could have hired people and prearranged for people to sing his praises and give his glories, but instead he let it happen very naturally as his disciples, prompted by the Spirit of God within them and in their enthusiasm in knowing that this is their Messiah, their long awaited King, naturally and of their own accord gave him praise. Jesus declared himself King by doing exactly what Zechariah had prophesied, riding into Jerusalem on the humble colt. Of a donkey. He didn't ride an impressive war horse. He didn't even ride a mule like Solomon rode when he was declared king by David. He rode a young donkey to illustrate his humility. The disciples made a makeshift saddle on the colt with their cloaks. They wanted to make it obviously a comfortable ride for him. And then the disciples that hadn't used their cloaks for the saddle, they're so excited, they take their cloaks off and lay them on the road in front of Jesus, which was the ancient equivalent of rolling out a red carpet in front of a dignitary. They were so excited and enthusiastic to honor Christ. They were so excited to see him coming into his own, coming into the capital city on the feast of Passover. This is our Messiah. This is our King. They wanted to exalt him. And as Jesus comes close to Jerusalem, the crowd of disciples and onlookers grows, and the disciples begin rejoicing and praising him. The scriptures say that they were praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. And as I was reading this passage over and over again in preparation for this message, there was one question that 
it kept coming to my mind, what triggered the triumphal entry? Because when you, when you think about the preparation, again, Jesus didn't set up some grand celebration. His preparation was, go get this donkey that I've prepared. That was it. And then he gets on the donkey and rides in. So what was it that triggered this going from a simple man riding into town to this celebration with thousands of people screaming and shouting and throwing their cloaks in front of him? Uh, the other gospels mention that they cut uh, branches off of the trees and laid those in his path as well. What was it that made this suddenly a magnificent, glorious, memorable event, so memorable that all four of the Gospels mention it? Well, thankfully, the Word of God answers that question. John 12 says that the crowd who witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead told others about it. Now, so let me give you the timeline a little bit. Obviously, I don't know the days, but not long before this triumphal entry was when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So there was a crowd of people that witnessed that resurrection, and John 12 says that they told other people about it. And because of their testimony, there were more people that believed in Jesus. And then it says in John further that a large crowd of Jews went to Bethany when he was staying there, when they heard that Jesus was there, because they wanted to see Jesus and see Lazarus, this man that had been so amazingly raised from the dead. And then on top of that, Jerusalem was filled with people who had come to the city, again, because the law commanded Jews to come to the city for the Feast of Passover. So they were hearing the news about this man who had done this astounding miracle, and they wanted to go out and meet him as well. The common thread here, really, the spark that caused this to go from, I'm just going to quietly, uh, with my disciples, ride a donkey into Jerusalem to thousands of people crowding the streets and shouting and screaming, the common thread, the spark, is Lazarus. What was it about Lazarus that really tipped the scales here? Well, I think part of it is the timing. Of course, that, that was the, the most dramatic miracle or, or the big miracle that Jesus performed closest in time to this triumphal entry. But I think also it's the dramatic nature of what happened with Lazarus. Because Jesus had raised other people from the dead, but Lazarus was actually in the tomb. And Lazarus had been dead four days, which means Lazarus was physically decaying he was rotting away, and Jesus walked up to the tomb. He told them to take the stone away, and he didn't reach in. He didn't perform some kind of ceremony. He didn't go in there and carry Lazarus out. He just said, Lazarus, come out. And so all this crowd around there is standing there, and they see a man struggling in grave clothes come out of the grave. It says he was still wrapped in the linen cloths. He still had a linen cloth over his face, and he is living. He had been dead seconds before, and he is living. So it was unbelievably dramatic. Can you imagine being there and witnessing that? Would you have any doubt that this man was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was everything he claimed to be? And so out of that excitement, out of that enthusiasm, these people are telling everybody they can tell, wow, you cannot believe what I just saw. We saw a man call another man out of a grave. Not a man they had laid down a few minutes ago, a man that had been in the grave for days. And so all that excitement was surrounding Jesus, and that's why all these people are so excited to go meet him. Wow, this guy is now coming into Jerusalem here during the Passover. This guy, he must be the king. He must be the Messiah. So in their enthusiasm and excitement, there's just a great roar and a great celebration that's happening. The followers of Jesus were excited. They were excited to see him come to Jerusalem. 
for the Passover. The new disciples, ones who had just been converted after hearing about this great miracle, surely they were filled with that exuberance that comes from newfound faith, knowing, okay, this is what I've been looking for all of my life. This is the one who can save me from my sins. This is the one who can give me rest. This is the one who is really the answer to life's greatest questions. And I'm sure their enthusiasm then spread to those who had been around Jesus for a while, and the whole group just kept building on one another. Jesus enters with great uh, shouting and praising, and Luke records two of the phrases that were used. The other Gospels mention some other things that were said, like Hosanna to the Son of David, which uh, I won't go into all those, I'll just focus on Luke. The first phrase in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is a reference to Psalm 118, verse 26, which says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All four Gospels actually use this phrase, but Luke is the only one who quotes it as saying king rather than he, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That some of the disciples who were shouting these praises, and the praise book of the nation of Israel was the Psalms, so it was natural they would quote that. But some of these disciples changed that quote from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, because they were recognizing this man is our Messiah our prophet, priest, and king. He is the one whom God has placed as king over Israel. He is the son of David, rightful heir to the throne. Now, it is highly likely, actually it's certain, I'll just go ahead and say that, it is certain that some of those who were his disciples, who trusted that he's the Messiah and were so excited to see him, some of them were excited because they thought that meant that he was riding into town to take over. He's going to raise an army. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to restore the nation of Israel to its kingdom glory. So that was playing into the enthusiasm of some of his followers. And of course, as you know, that was not how Jesus planned to establish his kingship. However, their praise was still accurate. Jesus is indeed the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. The other praise that Luke mentions, peace in heaven and glory in the highest is similar to what was said in Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's what the angels said after they told the shepherds, the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And then there was a great host in the heavens and they were saying, glory to God in the highest on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So at the beginning of Christ's life, this was said and now right here toward the end, a similar praise is offered. However, instead of saying peace on earth, his disciples say peace in heaven. Why would they say that? Why would they say peace in heaven? I mean, isn't there already peace in heaven? Don't you think God's kind of got things under control up there? It's down here we need peace. Why would they say such a thing? Well, I think it's a recognition that Messiah as our priest would bring peace between God and man. So they're not talking about God being at peace in heaven, but they're basically saying now between us and heaven, there can be reconciliation. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is peace in heaven between God and man for those who are reconciled through Christ. Jesus intentionally fulfilled Zechariah 9, 9, thus declaring himself to be the Messiah the long-awaited king of Israel. And finally, Jesus refuted those who rejected his kingship. Just 
in case we would have a tendency to misunderstand what Jesus was doing. He makes it clear by his response to the Pharisees. Because even though he was fulfilling prophecy, he didn't say, Hey guys, I'm here. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. Y'all bow before me, love me, lift me up. He didn't say that, right? He just rode in and let his disciples give his praises as he was fulfilling the prophecy. But look what happened in verses 39 to 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus had demonstrated over and over again that he was indeed the Messiah, which means that he was indeed the rightful king of Israel. But as you know, most of the Jewish leaders rejected him. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. He didn't fit their picture. He upset their apple cart. He was a threat to their power. They wanted, him, they wanted nothing to do with him. Some Pharisees that were in the crowd as Jesus rode into Jerusalem were really upset, livid that these praises were being given to him very publicly. These people are proclaiming Jesus to be the king and the Messiah. And of course, the Pharisees don't want anyone following him. They certainly don't want people hearing this kind of message. So they tell Jesus, shut your disciples up. This is ridiculous. Stop them. They shouldn't be proclaiming this. And the response that Jesus gives coming from anybody else's lips would be the absolute height of pride. There's a good Greek word, hubris, means overbounding pride. That, that's what that would be coming from anyone else's lips. Because he said, basically, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to praise me. That's how much I deserve to be praised. Coming from Christ, that fits because he's worthy. It isn't blasphemous. It isn't sacrilegious. It's exactly right. Jesus is confirming that he is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. He's saying that his entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah King in fulfillment of prophecy was so momentous that it had to be celebrated and praised. And the Father in heaven was so determined that there would be praise that if humans wouldn't praise him, God would raise up praise from the stones themselves. That's how important this moment is. That's how important Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the one God promised to send centuries before. He's the one whom Israel has been waiting for. He's the one who will deliver. He's the one who will bring peace. He's the one who will bring wholeness and righteousness and rest. But the Pharisees, in their hatred, in their jealousy, in their spiritual blindness, refuse to see it. Interesting, interestingly, right before this passage, Jesus tells a parable known as the parable of the ten minas. And it's about a nobleman who goes into a, who's leaving his land to go into another land to receive a kingdom. And the people in this kingdom that he's receiving hated him and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. The nobleman, of course, in this parable represents Jesus. And the Pharisees are fulfilling the role of these people who say they do not want him to rule over them. They reject him as king. And in the parable, the nobleman still receives the kingdom because his enemies are powerless to stop him. And eventually his enemies are killed for opposing him, which is a stark warning that Christ gave one among many to the Pharisees that those who oppose Christ will be ultimately destroyed. It's also a testimony to his true identity of king, that he received this praise and even commended and affirmed his disciples for giving him that praise. So again, 
I'll just say this. The main point of this passage, what God is telling us this morning is that Jesus is the king. That's what this is about. You aren't the king. I'm not the king. No person on earth is the king. Jesus is the king. Only one man in human history is qualified for that role. The one who existed before time began, the one who walked his entire life in perfect obedience, and the one who ultimately gave his very own life for us. Jesus is the king. If someone lied about you and you find yourself wanting to take revenge, remember that Jesus is the king. He chooses how you should respond, and he says that you should pray for your enemies. If you lost your job and the bills are piling up and you don't know how you'll make it another month, Remember that Jesus is the king, and out of his riches, he will supply all of your needs. Now, I realize that saying those words doesn't automatically make the hurt of betrayal go away. It doesn't mean that Swepco isn't still going to require that their bill get paid. But the fact that Jesus is the king does mean that you can trust and rest in his kingship. In your desperation, in your fear, in your pain, lean on this truth that Jesus is the king, and he will carry you through. He's greater than any problem that you'll ever face. He's mightier than any of your enemies, and he will bring you to himself one day in glory. You can build your life on this truth. God has given us a word this morning, and that word is that Jesus is the king. I pray that he will give us each the desire and the strength to respond to this word. I have a few suggestions for you for how you can respond. For one, you can praise the Lord that Jesus is the king. This is where I want to put the greatest emphasis because you're going to see in the list here a few other things that are are doings. And there is, as I often mention, there's a tendency within the Christian faith for pastors and preachers to lean on the doing. Go do, go do, go do, go do. And there are certainly things that God wants us to do. But the Christian faith is not about doing It is about believing. It is about your status changing from enemy to beloved child and being able to rest and stand in that. I don't want you to get the idea that uh, Jesus needs you to do him some favor or that he cannot accomplish his will apart from you. You can rest knowing that you are a beloved child no matter how you've been doing. Even if you look back on this week and say, see that your performance, your obedience, your pursuit of him has been awful, you stand before God purely on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ, so you can praise him that he is the king. And out of that secure place in God's family, you should work for his kingdom out of gratitude and love for what he has done. But the root, the foundation of the Christian faith is faith. It is trust in the living Christ, faith in his life, death, and resurrection. So praise the Lord today that he is the king. Praise him for that. You can also ask the Lord to show you where you're opposing his kingship in your life. This is something that I uh, struggled with a lot this week, just thinking about habits that I have that uh, I'm not putting under his kingship. Habits that I go, well, okay, I know he's the ruler and all that, and he owns my life, and he paid for me with his blood, but here's this little thing I kind of really enjoy, whether he likes it or not. That is me forgetting intentionally that Jesus is the king, And I don't get a vote in sin. I don't get to vote and say, well, this is okay. There was a, uh, years ago when uh, my wife and I were part of First Assembly of God here in Longview, 
There was an evangelist that came through and uh, preached one morning, and uh, his message was actually terrible. (laughs) But one thing that he said that I really liked, he was explaining this idea of kingship, and he said one thing that kingship means is that you don't get a vote. So if you are under a king, who makes the decisions? The king does, right? It's not a democracy, and the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. Jesus is the king, now, I realize just that that bare statement can rub you the wrong way, but remember who we're talking about. We're not talking about some greedy, power-hungry, evil, self-centered man. We're talking about the Lord Jesus, humble, loving, and caring, who gave his life for you. So ask the Lord to show you where you might be opposing his kingship in your life. Tell someone something that stood out from you from this passage, and look for ways to help others to know that Jesus is the king. For one thing... At the beginning of the service and the announcements, which were so graciously and excitedly given by our dear sister, Jenny DeBoer, you could help with the family Easter celebration. Because at that family Easter celebration, they're going to be proclaiming this. Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the Messiah. He's the king. So even you helping clean up or set up or do some behind-the-scenes humble thing is you contributing to people hearing that Jesus is the king. It's one of the ways that we go on the mission of Christ. It doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner and tell people that Jesus is the king, but you serve in ways that people can hear that Jesus is the king. And when you get that opportunity with a friend, family, family member, or neighbor, you can also testify to that truth. Amen. All right, well, let's all stand. I'm going to close this in prayer, and as I do, I'll ask the prayer team to come forward. There will be a group of people that will be up here at the front of the stage, as they always are. If you have any needs, if you have any burdens, if you have any concerns, perplexities, anything, they would be overjoyed to pray with you and just share the grace of God on your behalf. Let's go to him now. Gracious God, we praise you this morning that Jesus is the king. No one is more worthy No one is greater, no one more humble, no one more loving, no one more faithful. Jesus is the King. We praise Him. Lord God, I ask that you would fill our hearts with joy that you are the King, with joy that you are ruling. Regardless of what our government is doing, regardless of what other nations are doing, we can rest in the knowledge that you are the King, that you are ultimately in control of it all. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the faith of your people this morning. For those who are here, I pray for a special measure of grace. For those who are watching online, I pray for a special measure of grace to be reignited in their love for you, to be reaffirmed in their faith for you. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that your spirit would convince them that Jesus is the king, that they are naturally rebels against his kingship and stand outside of his grace and mercy. But if they will just believe, if they will just come to him, He will forgive and cleanse and unite them. God, I ask for your blessing on your church. And I pray that your name would be exalted. Amen.